Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're graced by the presence of Trad Cotter coming to us from Mushroom Mountain. Trad is a microbiologist, professional mycologist, and organic gardener who has been tissue culturing, collecting native fungi in the Southeast, and cultivating both commercially and experimentally for more than 25 years. In 1996, he founded Mushroom Mountain, which he owns and operates with wife Olga, to explore applications for mushrooms in various industries, and they currently maintain over 200 species of fungi for food production, microremediation of environmental pollutants, and natural alternatives to chemical pesticides. His primary interest is in low-tech and no-tech cultivation strategies so that anyone can grow mushrooms on just about anything anywhere in the world. Mushroom Mountain is currently undergoing an expansion to 42,000 square feet of laboratory and research space near Greenville, South Carolina, to accommodate commercial production and microremediation projects. His masterwork and the must-own mycology reference, Organic Mushroom Farming and Microremediation, had a huge impact on my own relationship with mycology. So, Trad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on here. We look forward to talking and entertaining everybody at the same time. That's the best we can hope for. Yeah. It's a little bit <laughs> of edutainment. Well, what do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about it all. And someone like you has a million things going on. You know, I know the biographical story might be a little bit of an old hat for you, but tell us a little bit of how you got into mushrooms, just that, that brief synopsis. You know, I was interested in nature when I was young. And uh, when I was in college, I was 18, 19 years old. And I was interested in going into like the medical field. But uh, one day my mom came home and said, you know, there's a, a medicinal mushroom farm out on John's Island, South Carolina. And uh, she goes, you should go tour it. And I said, okay. That's when she found out I was growing mushrooms in the attic. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I told her I was growing portobellas, but I wasn't. Of course you and, were. Yeah. But she, she knew I was interested in it. And I went out there and went on a tour and I was hired on the spot. So, you know, I, I started putting a lot more energy into my fascination with fungi. I started picking up lab equipment, tissue culture, started mushroom hunting. And, you know, I was on my own back then. You know, the Internet was just a, a child. There was very few references or, or ways of identifying mushrooms. So I went out, started identifying wild mushrooms on my own, and then I started cloning them. That was probably the turning point that fueled the fire was that I started to wonder like, well, we only grow two types of mushrooms at the farm. Right. You know, what about all these other ones, you know, that are good, uh, they're plentiful, they're in demand, they're seasonal. So I started culturing things like maitake back when people were not growing maitake indoors. I knew I could do it. I had that curiosity. And after a year and a half, two years at that mushroom farm, I left and I started Mushroom Mountain in 1996, you know, so uh, I've been growing mushrooms and putting my, this is my life's work. I love it. You know, it's nothing, there's nothing I'd rather do than wake up and just think about mushrooms all the time. You know, it's like during the day and at night, I'm dreaming about them and coming up with potential solutions. You know, that's where I'm at now. It's, it's, it's so much beyond just the cultivation. It's what can mushrooms do? You know, and yeah, we've got uh, 200 species. We probably have more like 300 species in the lab now. Wow. And, you know, there's thousands of species in this area in South Carolina. So I don't feel like I'm ever going to run out of things to do. It's crazy. Right. 
And I love encouraging others to do the same because we all need to work on what mushrooms can do. You know, it's going to take all of us getting involved to explore all the possible solutions when you're talking, you know, estimates ranging from hundreds of thousands to millions of species of fungi. The only way we're going to explore it all is, is everyone getting involved. And that's something I've often thought of. Are there mushrooms out there, you think, that have medicinal properties locked away, have some micro-remediative property locked away, and we just don't know it? It's not one of like the big cultivated mushrooms. It's not one of the most well-known ones. It just has properties waiting to be unlocked, even something poisonous or something like that. Totally. And um, we have poisonous and deadly species in our collection. People are like, why do you have those? You know, like a government watch list or something. <laughs> Got to turn to the dark side. But no, it's, and the answer to that question is every single fungus. And when people think of, you know, this is the mushroom hour, but fungus is, that's a mole. That could be a yeast. Yeah. It could be a mycorrhizal fungus. It could be an endophyte. It can be anything. So I, I don't feel like there's no way it's going to ever be fully uh, explored. It's, I just think there's an infinite number of potential for those millions of fungi that are here that we haven't discovered yet. You know, when they say, well, roughly 160,000 fungi have been discovered DNA sequenced and they estimate 5 million out there still waiting <laughs> to be found. We haven't even tested every single one that we found for medicinal properties or for remediation of building materials, anything like that. If you're a math major and you do all the variables and then you factor in 5 million, <laughs> I mean, this is, it's going to go on forever. You know, it's not, oh, we're going to accomplish this in our, our generation, our lifetime. No, this is for the long haul in humanity, you know, right. in civilization. It's just going to constantly work on. And when you bring up numbers like that and the incredible amounts of solutions hidden in so many different kinds of organisms, you can't really overstate it that it is kind of the future of humanity. I mean, further exploring what these life forms have to offer is generations and generations, generations of work. And there's, you're always left feeling there's so much hope there. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're faced with a lot of problems, but there's so much hope. There's 5 million nth to the whatever amount of solutions locked away in those 5 million species. And that's what gets me up in the morning. That's what gets excited. You know, we just had a meeting with someone we just hired and, I could see the passion and excitement in their eyes. And <laughs> that, that, uh, that gets me fueled because it's not just someone who wants to work with us. You could tell they had that spark, you know, they had that yeah. flame. That's the kind of person people we like to bring in the door is to be a part of this dream team. And we keep layering, you know, employees. Five years ago, we had one employee and now we've got eight. And I told this to uh, Clemson University, the, the business school came and interviewed me and they're like, how do you success? You know, what makes you happy? And I said, every other Friday when I sign paychecks, we're responsible for people's livelihoods, you know, ultimately our team. But at the same time, it's my first employee buying her first house, you know, and, you know, things like that. It means, means a lot to me. It's the humanity of owning the business too, that we're able to put people to work, but we're also able to attract people that share our vision and want to contribute to that. And they want to see things realized. We're working on so many things. Some of them are very complex and could be disruptive. You know, that's some of the things yeah. we'll talk about. That's what I want the legacy of the company to be, you know, not me. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, don't give me credit for this. Give the credit to the fungi. You know, you got to stay humble in this and say, yeah, I mean, this is what I do. I'm, I'm curious, but I'm learning what the fungi are teaching me. 
to develop solutions. They're the ones that have the actual gift. I'm just putting them in the position to help human civilization. Listening, trying to find new uses. And there's something special about that collective effervescence when you're really turned on about something with someone else and you guys are really activated and you're able to share in that and build something together like what you guys are building there. Mm -hmm. That's really something special. I guess Mushroom Mountain started as really all about the cultivation, I'm guessing for kind of food and medicinal use, but just give us the overview of what are all the different things you guys have your mycelial hyphae in now, you know, what are all the projects that you guys are working on? I just talked about that with the new hire, you know, uh, Mushroom Mountain is essentially a holding company and we have different pillars of businesses or concepts. And so the, there's the farm and the spawn laboratory. That's one pillar and its own entity. The other one is the, a medical entity, which includes mushroom extracts, antibiotics, things like that. There's micromediation, which we work with a, a friend of ours, uh, Leif Olson. Leaf's amazing. So remediation of toxic soil and pollutants. We're working on microfiltration projects so we can take bacteria out of water, which could be huge for like Haiti and uh, Yemen. And there's so many different layers to the business that we're yeah. adding different products, you know, research and development. We're just trying to figure out how can mushrooms help us? That's what I think about when I wake up. It's like, let's do this. And that's some of the most inspirational material that I've heard you talk about, you know, in various YouTube videos and all the, the stuff you put out there is talking about how growing mushrooms can be really impactful to underdeveloped countries, both as a food source, as a medicinal source, but also as, you know, a mycofiltration system, mm -hmm. potentially for a village that grows food. You know, what, what are some of the applications of mushroom technology, mycotechnology, if you will, uh, in right. the developing world? Actually, I was just on the phone with a food writer from the Caribbean who called me about a mushroom that grows in Haiti. And after we got done with that, uh, I told her about what I was doing down there. And, you know, listen, I said, mushrooms are high protein, vitamin D, good meat substitute, can be grown on just about anything, you know, oyster mushrooms. A system that we developed for the earthquake in Haiti, we called it the Mushroom Rescue Modules. It's in my book. And it's an idea that people can take debris, agriculture, or even, you know, waste, or cardboard, paper, anything, stuff it into these containers and grow mushrooms with a starter culture and have edible food for their family in just a few weeks. And then that can perpetuate. You could take that bin and share it or expand it tenfold every week. What's also sexy about that idea is that you could filter water through the media when the mushrooms are done fruiting. Right. So you have the system of fruiting mushrooms, the old bins, you filter water, take out bacterial pathogens, Number three, the same bins will uh, produce octanol. Mushrooms produce a chemoattractant that attracts mosquitoes. So you set up the bin somewhere where it uh, vectors female disease-carrying mosquitoes, where they can be trapped. So you can keep them away from human populations at night. So that's three. Wow. Um, number four, you can use the media and mix it with clay and develop a carbon-negative building material, which is also what we're working on. It's a, a myceliated clay. So uh, you mix it with the clay, form the bricks, and then it's like chemical rebar. So there's four very important things. You know, you're talking about food, water, and shelter. <laughs> All three. Right? I mean, that's absolutely mind-blowing. And how close are we to any kind of institutional adoption? Because I'm sure listeners 
like I'm having a reaction like that just makes all the sense in the world. Whenever we're trying to help a place that's been struck by any kind of disaster, whether it's, you know, a tsunami, whatever it may be, it would seem like obvious to deploy something like that that meets all these basic needs just with mushroom mycelium. So have you guys taken that route at all, working with, you know, disaster response institutions, or is it more grassroots putting the schematics out there to let people do it in those areas? Or? Yeah, I mean, we're talking to a lot of people right now. There's yeah. people, you can look up the Mauritius oil spill. I don't know if you heard about that. No. Look that up if you're listening. It's a disaster. It's beyond a disaster. It's actually heartbreaking. I think about it a lot and I get emotionally affected because I think about if I was an indigenous person on that island and a oil taker struck the reef and broke in half, the damn thing broke in half. And it, it's a very delicate ecosystem and just thousands and thousands of tons of oil hit the shore. It's terrible. So they contacted us to see if we could put together an idea for a micro-remediation project. You know, that was just, the oil spill happened, I believe, in June or July. The thing broke apart in August. So we're trying to work with the Wildlife Federation over there. They're in the process of putting me together with the United Nations for food security there. Because I told them, I said, listen, we're going to need biomass to do the remediation, meaning we're going to need, you know, spent oyster mushroom substrate to help with the remediation. It makes perfect sense that we teach mushroom cultivation workshops. So number one, people have jobs, they have food, the fishermen are out of jobs. So now they can at least until the ecosystem recovers, putting them in a position to generate food and income for themselves, for other families, you know, instead of selling fish, they sell mushrooms. And at the same time, you have this community effort. It's not us coming to the rescue, it's them helping themselves, you know, so it empowers the community. Uh, we just have to show them how to do it. That's on the hot button right now. You know, you have to be. And yeah. it's an opportunity to get boots on the ground and prove and disprove that things work. I mean, otherwise, it's just another chapter in a book that says you could do this. You Mushrooms can. They may. You know, but that's just not good enough. You know, I'm ready for action. I'm ready for these things to be deployed into refugee camps. You know, I lived over in the Middle East. I've seen refugee camps in Haiti. And... I just want mushroom to be a part of the solution. It's a work in progress. Yeah, totally. I mean, taking it from the theoretical and putting it into action, how powerful is that? And I think a lot of us are hungry for that when you get into this world of mycology and you start learning all these amazing things, reading your book, reading a mycelium running, whatever it is, you start thinking, man, why are we not doing this already? So it's really cool to hear that you're actually taking those steps to start the the implementation phase, which is, you know, where you run into those difficulties, what works, what doesn't. In a general sense, just because micro-remediation is something so many of us are interested in, it's one of those big, hope-inspiring aspects of working with mushrooms. What's kind of that general concept of micro-remediation? Because when I was reading some of the material you have, it talks about, you know, land enhancement, micro-remediation. So when we're talking micro-remediation, what are we really doing? And what are some of the ways that we actually deploy mushrooms to solve environmental problems? Right. And fungi can naturally figure it out. Um, there's indigenous fungi. And that's what I said at the beginning. Don't discount all those organisms in the soil. You know, most of them are molds. They're ascomycetes. The right. bulk of all fungi, that's why they're not discovered. It's because who's going to, you know, who has time to scoop up a little, a gram of soil, streak it, and now you got, you know, a hundred new species, DNA sequencing and everything. People have put way too much attention, including myself, on mushrooms that you could see. 
because people identify with that. They sometimes think, well, the molds don't, I don't see them, nothing's happening. So I'm really anxious to start testing molds and going to these disaster sites would be a great idea because to me, it's a build it and they will come approach. Mm. And uh, the Mauritius government was talking about this, you know, that they, of course, I agree with this. I mean, they don't want us to bring fungi from another continent there. You know, that's an island that would be biologically dangerous to the ecosystem. So what we're going to do is ask the community to go out and look for mushrooms that are growing in and around the devastated environment. So those organisms would amplify and show up. What kind of happened was that oil spill put out a welcome mat and is selecting fungi and bacteria and different organisms to thrive in that devastated environment. So that's one of the tactics that people really need to think about is not saying, oh, well, this oyster mushroom, it can break down oil. So I'm going to bring it over. I'm going to use it. Well, you know, it's, it's a strain from North America. Number one, it's not going to like the climate, find something there. And that's number one is, is really discovering the fungus that can do the job first. There will always be a better fungus. Don't delay. (laughs) We can't be afraid to fail. We got to go fail forward and keep trying and figuring out these fungi. The good news is those players on the field are already out there and running tests. You know, you don't be afraid to do a pilot, do a countertop test. You know, we've done so many of them. And right now we're doing filtration studies for the city of Greenville, which is my neighboring city. And they're taking a huge leap of faith that there hasn't been many microfiltration projects documented in the world. It's all on paper. It's all theoretical. Right. Or hypothetical, rather. And so we're taking this step. And, you know, Mushroom Mountain is meeting halfway or more than halfway on developing the system. It's a huge cost. Uh, Research is not cheap. And uh, we're willing to put our chips on the table, get some skin in the game and say, let's try this. You know, let's try a couple different species. Let's try a couple different media formulas. Let's run bacteria through there and let's see what happens. If it doesn't work, try it again. (laughs) If it doesn't work, try it again. You know, will it work? I'm an optimist, unfortunately, and I don't give up. Well, that's what we're going to need. I mean, anyone who's tried to cultivate mushrooms knows that that mentality is definitely necessary just to get mushrooms to grow successfully, much less when you're talking about implementing it on a bigger project. And you got to the heart of what was going to be my next question was like, it's amazing to see, you know, mushrooms being used as tools in disaster areas or underdeveloped Mm -hmm. areas. But what are some ways that we could use it in our own infrastructure here in the U.S.? What are some of the ways that we could use it right here at home? Uh, and that one's really inspiring, mycofiltration. Just to get to the nuts and bolts a little bit, is that just as simple as running water through a mycelial mat? Is there any special consideration of substrate or how does that work? Yeah, it's not that simple. And I appreciate, you know, everyone's effort and excitement. But when I see mycofiltration studies or a installation done, you know, mm-hmm. you see them all the time online. There's just putting mycelium in wood chips and burlap bags and throwing them out in the environment. And there has to be some preliminary testing done first. Number mm-hmm. one is, you know, species selection. What we did that no one else did first, I believe, is that we tested the fungi for tensile strength. And um, what that is, is the ability for the fungus to bind the particles together, right? right? I mean, what good is a fungus? It could be really good at remediation, 
but it could be a weak binder. So if you put wood chips out there and you mix it with the mycelium and you have a rain event, it, it would just blow the filter apart, right? Right. So we looked at uh, high tensile strength, also the ability to cross wall. And I know nobody can see me, but if you take your fingers and put them together and clasp them together, uh, you're making surface area. And you want a lot of cross walling because you want bacteria to get trapped in there. I'm talking about bacteria. I'll talk about chemicals in a minute. Bacteria are easy if you understand that you need cross-walling. So the particle size of the substrate is important. Let's say everyone visualize a bunch of big wood chips, big chunky wood chips. Well, the water flows right through it. The mycelium is not going to make that tighten it in those big gaps, right? It's just going to stick to the wood chips. So you have to design a media where water flows through it, (laughs) which is tricky, at a high rate of flow that cross walls heavy and doesn't fall apart. So there's there's more to just throwing it together. And, you know, we've developed formula after formula and we finally got one that seems to be working. And we use a fungus that my mom found down in Key West, Florida. Oh, that's amazing. And it was really cool. She called me and said, um, I found this mushroom growing on a Australian pine stump in Key West Harbor right at the edge of the harbor, meaning and she said the waves were lapping over the top of the stump and there was mushrooms growing off of that. Well, if that doesn't turn you on as a mycologist, and I'll tell you why. I know it's sad to say it turns me on, but it does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is why it turns Just being me on. honest. Yeah. yeah. It's growing on Australian pine. It's a tree that is really hard to break down. So that tells uh-huh. me something, that fungus has chemical keys or enzymes that are special and it can break down this tree. So it's got a, a very strong key set, which means it might be able to do wonderful things to very difficult to decompose or break down molecular stuff, nasty uh, man-made pollutants. And number two was that salt tolerance. Oh my God, that's sure. huge. Let's talk about that Mauritius oil spill right now. It's not in fresh water. You can't use an oyster mushroom <laughs> because... It is not going to it's not going to vibe out with that salinity at all. It's not going to grow. It's going to die. So of course, yeah. So here you have it. The tensile strength of the tiger sawgill we tested at Columbus University on uh, these little bricks that we made and in pure block form, like pure mycelium. King Strafaria, by example, a lot of people might know that mushroom, little garden giant. Yep. That's been used in remediation. It like started it all. It's like, oh, well, this one can filter bacteria and all this stuff. It's terrible. It's actually <laughs> the worst one. And I'll tell you why, because well, it has a tensile strength of 30,000 times its own weight. That sounds great. All right. Here's why it's not great. Once it gets into the environment in the lab, it's cross-walled. It's really tight and thick. It's cottony. But once it gets into the environment and it gets exposed to bacteria and the elements, it gets really ropey and mm. it's like Swiss cheese. So it, it really does not make a, a, a good filter. And they've actually seen bacterial populations spike because there's so much organic material and not that much mycelium there. So wow. it feeds the bacteria and it amplifies it. All right. So that's strike number two. Potential strength, 30,000 times its weight. So let's go back to the tiger sawgill mushroom. That one forms tight cross walls. It grows kind of like an oyster mushroom. It's tight. And it has a tensile strength of 800,000 to 1 million times its own weight. 
That seems that's astronomical. Why, I don't have a point. I don't have a basis of comparison, but that seems oh absolutely well, amazing. It's like if you twist it into the same diameter as a, a thread of steel. Yeah. Right. That's the comparison. It could be as strong as steel and it's a living strand of cells. Right. That's what's incredible. And that's the fungus we're using in the, uh, the clay with the building materials. I owe a great gratitude and credit for my mom yeah. finding that she could revolutionize building materials and all filtration and all kinds of things. And you know what? She was just walking along the beach, which should tell anybody listening, whether you're a mycologist or not, that when you notice a mushroom doing something that just is, looks a little off or different, collect it, dry it, and send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Got to send it to me. And that's the community approach is that I'm not out there collecting so much anymore, but if there's sure. more people who care about the planet and they know that fungi can do these amazing things, they're going to be on the lookout. We'll get these things turned in. We'll test them. We'll see what we can do once we get them. Yeah. And it's an amazing story of just observing, listening to the mushrooms, listening to nature. And what's something that really struck me that was actually in your book is this idea of thinking like a mushroom, maybe yeah. not exactly thinking like a mushroom, because I don't know if we can enter that that crazy headspace, but just understanding what that mushroom is as an organism and what it's doing. So when you see it growing on a novel substrate, you know, okay, there's some weird enzymes being produced here. There's something going on here. One of the other areas of your work that really ran away with my imagination was your work in the medical field. Mm. Uh, makes sense that that was kind of what you were interested in before you got into mushroom yeah. cultivation. But I know you've given some talks about you know, how mushrooms might be able to change antibiotics and change medicine. What are some of the uses you guys are working on there for mushrooms in the medicinal arena? First, I want to start by beginning, you know, that I, that I said every mushroom is medicinal and it sounds like a profound statement, but it's true. They're out there battling their way. There's a lot of competition in the wild and they have to defend themselves and they have to do what's called nutrient capture and they, they have to fight for territory just like humans do because they <laughs> want the resources. Right. You know, and they'll battle each other too. The mushrooms don't like each other. I hate to say that to everybody. Uh, it's kind of sad, but we like to think they're all holding hands singing yeah, Kumbaya, they're, but they're competing. Rainbows, Care Bears, everything. No, it's not like that. <laughs> if it's clonal, yeah, shiitake strain in the lab will fuse and it's friends, but even a two different shiitake strains will try to kill each other in the lab. They don't like each other, you know? Right. It's sick people, you know, it's competition. So they sweat out all these biological weapons in the form of antibiotics and, and compounds to defend themselves, but also to surface disinfect where they're going. So if you're listening to this, you can imagine this fungus, these threads are dividing and penetrating the wood chips, let's say, or a log, and it's not sterile. And in front of it, it's actually sweating like a little bead of moisture and it's drilling and swimming through that bead. Now, yeah. that's where the magic happens. It's because the tips of those hyphae are very intelligent, chemically intelligent, and they're detecting what the uh, nutrient source is. They're sweating out the enzymes to eat it, and it's dynamic because at the same time, if there's another fungus or a bacteria there, it's in the way, you know? It's going to yeah. sweat out, you know, almost like Lysol. It's going to sweat out a very unique suite or cocktail of antibiotics that are 
dialed up genetically by this fungus to try to kill that competitor. You know, penicillin works that way, or it did work that way. You know, it's not so great anymore. You know, penicillin, antibiotic discovery, it was huge. Fleming, you found it, said, listen, if we overuse penicillin, he said this when he made the discovery, we risk losing this because the organisms will become drug resistant. Mm. And that is happening uh, very quickly. And that's when I kind of got involved. I just, you know, it was a curiosity of mine, but how it started with us is, you know, we had a contaminant, contaminated plate and I zipped it up into a Ziploc bag, threw it in the lab garbage, went off to work for a week at the EPA. I did my fellowship and I came back and the, it was still there. And I looked at it and I looked closer. I took some pictures and I saw the fungus surging over the top of this other mold. And it was just like carpet bombing it with these little droplets. Mm. All right. So most fungi in the lab are like zoo animals. They, they're not out in the wild. Right. They are not producing novel antibiotics, right? Because why would they? they There's the no pressure. competitors on the plate. So yeah. we started putting other fungi on the plates. I ordered my bacteria for my birthday. <laughs> that was my birthday present to myself. I ordered uh, E. coli, salmonella, strep throat cultures, pneumonial cultures, pseudomonas, candidas, and, and staph. That was like my birthday present. That's an interesting one. <laughs> I do stuff like that. But to me, it was a present that would keep on giving. You know, it's a gift that keeps on giving because it's about ideas. If there was a discovery to be made, I mean, what bigger birthday present could you get? So what we're trying to do is pair these fungi up with bacterial pathogens that have a high probability of mutation or drug resistance. And so we've developed some systems we're still working on them. I can't talk about the details of too much about them. Some of it's sure. in my book, but uh, we've had some hits on, you know, Rishi and Strep and Jack-O-Lantern and drug-resistant staff, MRSA. Uh, that, wow. that happened over at Clemson. I don't keep any drug-resistant bacteria at our labs, uh, but we, we are level two or class two lab. Uh, we've got a level one and level two. So we yeah. can work with pathogens to some extent. But once it gets to drug resistance, I'd rather just have them do that at a, you know, at a different lab. So yeah, we're, we're trying to develop what I would call as a novel, eliciting novel metabolites or novel antibiotics from fungi using a specific design. It's like a design patent. And that we can license out when it gets, you know, when it gets fully developed. So we're still, I ordered fresh bacteria two weeks ago. Um, I'm ready to run the trials again. Again, you know, I've worked on these designs. It's like a container for five years. And, and every year I, I just think about it. It incubates. And I said, oh, we can make this better before I make it go public. Let's just think about this, you know. And what we're looking for is, you know, hey, somebody goes into the hospital. Instead of just getting the antibiotic that's on the shelf, that is not target specific, that would kill a lot of your natural flora, you know, in your body, why can't we find something that's more target specific to the pathogen that would leave all the other innocent bystanders, you know, still working and doing their job? So, you know, we're looking for that golden BB approach. But what's interesting, it's not pharmaceutical grade, you know, it's a cocktail that the fungus dials up. Right now, it could never be considered 
a drug by the FDA. <laughs> it it's puts us in a precarious position. <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of those superpowers of fungi that I don't think people realize is down at that level where they're fighting it out with other microorganisms. That's really where the magic's happening. They're producing compounds that are being synthesized. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but are being synthesized just out of the raw organic chemistry. You know, they just, it's not like they have these chemicals in them per se. They're synthesizing it right there. How we describe it to the listeners, it's like, it's like having an assembly line that can make anything. It's just a bunch of robots on the assembly line. And once the fungus gets a whiff of, let's say, salmonella out there, then it just kind of slows down, stops, and then sends signals back to the body of the mycelium and say, we need to make this now, you know? Yeah. And then they sweat it out. And what we were hoping this does is basically it's like every patient that comes into the hospital can get a different antibiotic that the fungus creates or dials up like a vending machine. And that to me is just poetic, you know? Truly personalized medicine. Yeah. Why are we taking the, all taking the same drugs and we're taking people are, you know, they save their leftover prescriptions, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm guilty of doing it when I was younger. I didn't know or you borrow someone else's, you know, oh, can I have some amoxicillin? Hey, here, you got a fever. Antibiotics don't work on viruses. It's like you could <laughs> have the flu and you're taking an antibiotic. That's how the problem starts. That's you how know? you get antibiotic resistant right. bacteria out there is we're using it too much. Yeah, I just had a fungal pathogen expert on recently who said, you know, we can't let good drugs go to waste. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And I think this idea could revolutionize everything. Now, you said you're in a precarious position. I'm guessing this isn't something you can necessarily file patent protection on other than the special environment you're building that helps yeah. the fungus do its thing to, to personalize and identify what, what it's going after, what it's trying to synthesize. Yeah, it would be a design and process patent. Fundamentally, it's it's uh, we've made so many improvements, and I can't wait to get back into the lab. I'm off for three weeks after this is being taped and it's going to drive me crazy because when (laughs) i get back i mean i'm going to go full-on salmonella and and e coli everything and uh you know figure it out and so we can push this forward like i said it's complicated i'm okay with that you know it's probably the most complicated thing we've got going on but if it can be danger you know if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out again you know i've been working on it for five years if it takes 10 years 20 it doesn't matter you know, right. if no one's able to figure it out, but we have to do something else. You know, what we are doing now in medicine isn't working. It's only working for two, two and a half years. A new antibiotic becomes drug resistant. And yeah. now we've got super bugs, you know, where nothing works. Yeah. And if you get something like that, the doctor's going to walk into your bed and say, there's nothing we can do. Right. Can't stop it. You know, flesh eating bacteria going to have to amputate. You know, I mean, it's just like, that's my hope is that we could do this and the doctor can walk in and hopefully take a biopsy and and then turn around and administer uh, something specialized within 24 to 48 hours. What a dream scenario. Yeah. No kidding. Those are the kind of ideas that, that I think about the most is, you know, we talked about water, we talked about food, we talked about shelter, and now we're talking about human health and medicine. And the idea that uh, we could develop a whole new system that really wasn't thought about. And that's all just, like you said, thinking like a mushroom. (laughs) When you know what a mushroom's doing or 
chemically thinking or how they react, you know, you could emulate that. You could say, okay, let me put this fungus in the position to do that really well. And that's what we did. You know, that was the fungus showing me that on the plate. I didn't design that experiment. That was a mistake. And yeah. it's just observation and just say, listen, this thing's telling me a story. I'm looking at it. <laughs> like it's talking to me. I'm just I'm staring at the plate. Like, what are you telling me? Like, what do you, what do you want? What are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> right. And, and then I was like, oh, oh, you know, what can we do with this? Then it became an idea of, well, if it works on animal pathogens, which could be human or, you know, pets, livestock, that's a whole nother thing. But, you know, we tried it on uh, some plant pathogens too. And now you're talking about agriculture. So it's just nuts. You know, anybody who's listening, I mean, you should be getting goosebumps like I have right now. <laughs> and that's a good sign because I've been doing this 26 years and the hair on my neck stands up when I think about it, you know, still. It's just exciting that, you know, we're, we're even able to do this and experiment with stuff like this. Unbelievable. It was one of the most exciting things that I think I ever heard you talk about in one of your lectures. And you just kind of added this other layer. Of course, this would then scan out into livestock. And the, I mean, the amount of antibiotics we pump into livestock, there's got to be a better way to do that. And we talk about plant pathogens, which is really a huge area of research and it's much the same mechanisms of play. So, yeah, yeah, I think if you think about human health, now you're talking about pesticides. Well, what if we have a novel organic means of taking a diseased plant in a field right during a breakout, an outbreak, and hitting it with a target specific spray or inoculant, which leaves the immunity of that plant, right? You're not wiping out everything in that field. And then the, the plants become more immune to disease because their immune systems are gone. You know, you basically fried them uh, mm -hmm. by killing all the other beneficial organisms, which could be insects. It could be endophytes, spraying antifungal compounds. Listen, there's maybe a couple pathogens that are doing the damage that you see, but think about all the other fungi that are trying to hold down the fort and you're going to go yeah. in there and just napalm them. You know, now you are in the precarious position of those plants need spraying all the time because they have no defense mechanism. You've wiped it out. So we need to build the immune systems of people. We need to build the immune systems of our plants at the same time. Otherwise, they become addicted to fertilizer. They're addicted to the pesticides or, you know, they because they need it. They, they're dependent on that. So I, I just think it's, uh, again, that's just another spinoff of that one Patriot plate I threw away. And, yeah. and so well, that's what gets me excited is like, Shit, what's, what's going to happen today? You know, what am I going to notice? What ideas, what can we do with fungi? You know, what accident is going to open the door to another paradigm changing yeah. potential of fungi. And it's also a great example of human meddling in natural systems rather mm -hmm. than trying to understand that natural system and kind of nurture it and cater to it in the best possible way are just our meddling in the way we thought worked well makes these natural systems that are then reliant on that continued meddling, if you will. Mm -hmm. So not a sustainable system. And I much, I much prefer the idea of harnessing the abilities of fungi to naturally bolster the system. Yeah. We got to fortify and understand how to make them stronger themselves. Listen, humans, I mean, it was probably thought of as good intent. Listen, we got millions of people. There's pathogens. Pesticides worked for a while. 
ultimately people now, now you're ingesting pesticides. I was just reading a, a study yesterday about people in France with really high pesticide percentages or concentrations in their tissue. It's off the charts. And I'm sure if they did it to, to the people, citizens of the U.S., it would be the same. You know, you take a perfectly good food and you're basically poisoning it. It kind of counteracts the whole idea of eating fresh food anyway. Yeah. Well, I eat fresh. I eat apples. I eat salads. Oh, well, they're heavily sprayed, right? Yeah. Not good for you. Not good. Yeah. Any mushroom people listening to this, we're all salivating, minds exploding with this idea. What's been the reaction from folks maybe in the medical field, maybe in the agricultural field, f- people who aren't necessarily obsessed with fungi, but that you kind of cross-pollinate with in exploring these ideas, what's their reaction to the potential here? Well, um, one of the investigators that we worked with at the university ended up going to the NIH, and she was very drawn and open to the idea. And to this day, she left a couple of years ago, and I emailed her six months ago and told her I was starting it back up and she's still interested in working on it. She said this is just um, for a pathogenic microbiologist like that, who's worked for the equivalent of the uh, Danish CDC, to look at this and say this has huge potential. You know, and now she's at the NIH and still interested. It's on her mind. But and there's also that say, oh, well, you know, why isn't it out there? Why have you done anything? Well, <laughs> it's a huge idea, number one. And also, you could have people somewhat lobbying against your idea and trying to dissuade you so you lose your momentum or interest and say, oh, we ain't going to work, don't bother, or they're crazy. You know, that's fine. I'm, I'm okay being called a little bit strange and, and out there, but, you know, it was a strange idea going to the moon. It was a strange idea to build a cell phone. You know, who cares? The agricultural side, I've had several instances where we've done uh, sampling and injections back into the fields and, uh, and eliminated the pathogens. So we need to get to the point where we do my studies with the uh, antibiotics, and then we do human clinical trials after that. So step one for us is going to be to just make sure that this new design works flawlessly. We're trying to work it so robots can do it, you know, because they're pathogen mm. and it's more accurate. Right. That would be step two, would be secure. The the intellectual property would be there so nobody else steals it. That's on the dark side, you know? And That that happens as a consideration you have to think about. And listen, I know people are like, oh, you know, patenting. Oh, you're going to do this and that. And listen, I mean, I know I'm a modern hippie and all, but if you don't protect it, it's going to get into the wrong hands. And so we want to make it affordable because what good is a medicine if you can't afford it? Mm -hmm. And people who companies who make drug discoveries like drug companies and pharmaceutical companies, they spend millions of dollars, 200, 800 million dollars to create a new drug, right? They need to get their money back. My system is very inexpensive. (laughs) That's what makes- Not if they developed it. Not if they- told how expensive it is. Yeah. And my one concern is that, you know, and this is for the attorneys, I don't talk about it, but- these things are dialing up some novel compounds, which means someone can synthesize it and then they yeah. can patent that. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've, uh, we've got something in the channel to protect that. Wow. Um, good. Multi-layered. Like that. Ah, right. We don't, because we don't want this to happen. I've been approached by 
some pharmacy folks at a convention, a medicinal plant conference, and they said, oh, we want to talk to you. We can fraction it out. We can purify it. Then we can synthesize it. And I'm just like, I don't want your card. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You're the exact person that I do not want to work with. And I said, I'll tell you why, because you're going to do that. It's going to be another molecule in the market. Then it's become drug resistant again. Yep. I was like, it's not defeats the, way the whole it purpose. Works. Yeah, it's not the way it works. Anyway, I, I don't like the idea of holding health ransom to the highest yeah. bidder, which is how much can someone pay? I mean, this should be a system that's uh, natural, patient target specific, whatever you want to call it. That's extremely affordable. And then now you're talking about there's five million fungi out there, right? Look at all the potential antibiotics that could be, or antifungal compounds for plants. I mean, it's just, that's, that's what I'm talking about. We're in exponential universe in terms of the number of compounds we're talking about. And thank you for breaking down that whole intellectual property decision, because that's a good angle that I don't think we always think of is patenting something also protects it from someone else getting their hands on it. Could then patent it and charge whatever they wanted or do whatever they wanted with it. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I tell people this on tours, and you know it's true because you can see right through my heart. The more we make, the more we can do as a company. You know, yeah. we make things that people need, not what they want. Now, I want you to think mm. about that. Mm. <laughs> and you can ask someone in Haiti the same question, and you'll get a different answer. It's probably the same thing. What do you need and what do you want? They're going to say, I need and want food, shelter, you know water, clean water. But if you ask an American or someone living in a city, what do you need and what do you want? They're going to say need, I don't know. Well, I need food. I need air. What do you want? Oh, well, I want a new car. <laughs> I want. Yeah. My daughter wants a new fidget spinner or a doll, you know, and just materialistic junk. And that's not us. That's not who we are. We're never going to make or be involved with anything that's just so petty and contributes to what people want. You know, it's about what people need. What does this planet need? What does society need? And, and we all feel that. I mean, we all feel that innately, that kind of collective pressure by some of the issues we're facing. And we all know we need some kind of solution. So I appreciate you taking it from the hypothetical and really starting to apply and get in the field and yeah. starting to do some of this work. Cause it's one of the few times I've been able to speak with someone who is really doing the yeah. work. And I hope, inspirational. I hope this is, it does inspire because I frequent universities all the time. And that's why I like teaching the kids. I don't care if they're first grade or kindergarten, you know, I'm out there uh, lecturing to kids at mother earth fairs, toddlers up to five, 12 years old. They're just rolling their eyes. Oh, my mom and dad brought me to the mushroom lecture. Oh, this is going to be boring. And then I'm showing like pictures of infected ants with cordyceps popping out of their brains And then I give them a starter culture to take home. That's the age that you want to hit because they're fascinated. They're in the creative state of mind. They're not using their thinking brain or their egos. That develops later. And I hate to use the word infect, but if I can infect (laughs) the kids when they're young, I'll give you an example that just, it just makes me, um, it made me tear up at the moment. It's still a soft place in my heart for this little boy in Oregon. At the end of my talk, I give out a little piece of cardboard to everyone, wet piece of cardboard. 
and a Ziploc bag and a little chunk of mushroom mycelium. And they roll it up into the little thing, like making a burrito, and they stick it in their bag. And I told them that, you know, listen, this is a starter culture. You can keep it alive for the rest of your life. I said, I could if you want to. You can expand this and grow mushrooms on it and do all kinds of things. And then I have them take a Sharpie and name it. They name it like a pet. Yeah. About an hour later, I'm signing books and there's a line of people waiting there. You know, I just got out of a bigger lecture and and this woman comes storming up through the line, like pushes the person kind of aside that I was, you know, had a book. And she goes, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, uh, and the person next to me, another author was looking at me like, uh-oh. And I said, yeah. I said, is there a problem? And she goes, and she's holding the bag with the cardboard in it. And it's got a name on it, like uh, Marley, <laughs> something like that. And she goes, did you give this to my son and tell him to keep it under his pillow? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy. And I do a lot of improvs. I'm like, I don't remember that. But probably just to be funny, like the tooth fairy. I don't know. And I was just like the mushroom fairy, you know? Yeah. And uh, I said, uh, yeah. And then she paused for a second and then she, she looked at the bag and she goes, did you tell him to name it like a pet? <laughs> he goes, what is this? And uh, I said, yeah, I did. And it's a star, it's a mushroom starter culture. And she looked at me and she goes, I thought he was making it all up like her child was <laughs> crazy. But this is the best part that the son stepped out behind her. I didn't even know he was there. He was scared. Like, because I, I was getting chewed up. Yeah. <laughs> he was scared for me. This little boy, she handed the bag back to him. And this little boy turned to all the people in the line and held it up and lectured to them. He said, I'm going to feed this to all the garbage in the world. And I was just like, oh, my God. He just told all these adults, you know, that he, mushrooms are the solution and he's going to be a part of it. And it just melted. It melted my soul. This little kid got it. And I figured, you know, that's what I want to do is create more of these young micro warriors, you know, like interested in helping and understanding that at that young age, he's going to remember that. Then when he gets into middle school and then high school and then high school, you just kind of lose interest. Now you're a worker bee. You know, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Mm. Hell. Maybe just a few of these students or kids will grow up and say, hey, I want to be a microbiologist. I want to be a mycologist. Look at all these wonderful things that fungi are doing and then build off of the knowledge of what we're doing, what you're doing, what anyone in the field, no matter what age you are. It's about the accumulative knowledge passed down. And if you don't teach and educate and if you keep all the information to yourself, it's never going to advance. Right. Yeah. So I'm very open and I share a lot of information. Most people say maybe sharing more than I should, but I'd rather have some of that out there in case someone listening is like, wow, that gives me a good idea. See, yeah. when there's infinite possibilities and infinite solutions, the more of us that are working and thinking in that space, that's what excites me. And that's what gives me optimism. You know, the human race could be okay. But it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long, hard haul, you know, yeah, because long way to go. a lot of zombies out there that are just going to go with the flow. You know, they're going to go with the, what the corporations tell them. Uh, that's what the TV says. That's what the commercial's doing. I want to, I want to make it very clear that uh, I want to disrupt that. <laughs> 
I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> well, to use that zombie analogy, we got to be that cordycep that goes and inoculates all these zombies' minds and yeah. turn it to because once you get people more aware of mycology and the power of mushrooms, and you start explaining, you know, from food to water to health, all these different possibilities, mm. it's almost like they can't go back after that. And it's very few and far between that I have people just kind of say, oh, that's not interesting. I don't think I've ever gotten that response. It's always, oh, wow, really? And maybe they don't dive all the way into it, but inevitably they're left with a greater appreciation of, you know, the humble, what they think of the humble mushroom, the humble fungus. Yeah, I'm, I want people to be able to listen to not just this podcast, but watch more. There's plenty of great podcasts. You, know, you have people on here and the more you listen to people who are studying in this field, if you've never heard any of this stuff, I hope you're sitting in your car or in bed and just like, whoa, I never knew. And then when you go outside for a walk, that's when it hits you. And you now you're seeing mushrooms. It's like you've woken up and thinking differently. And that kind of permanence is important. It's really important to your mental health that you understand that mushrooms are amazing and I'm going to pay attention to them and respect them. It's just an amazing feeling. And so. it's funny, a lot of people are talking about that kind of overused phrase, waking up. And I feel like as a part of that modern awakening out of our, Ooh. out of our slumber, an appreciation of fungi somehow seems to be an integral part of that. Even if it doesn't end up being your life's vocation, it ends up being yeah. this like attaining higher consciousness, turning off the TV, appreciating mushrooms somehow is always in that spectrum for people. And I just appreciate people like yourself who are doing the work to inspire us all on what's possible. And then maybe even if it's just a couple of us who hear Trad put our hand to a couple of these solutions. I mean, we put our hand to a couple of these problems and applying fungi as a solution. Then we're going to start to see the exponential growth, the new possibilities emerge. And I always tell people, I am never be jealous of anyone you see now who's working with mycology. You want to be like that. Get inspired and really, you should be jealous of the people in 100 years and what they're going to know and what they're going to be doing. I want, I want to meet those people and be with those people. Well, just keep eating medicinal mushrooms. You might live a little bit longer to see. <laughs> if you like the way the world it is, just don't do anything, you know? Hmm. But I don't like it. You know, it's Listen, I love everyone and I love the planet and all that. But I have some major issues with what's going on. And I'm not going to sit back and wait. I'm not going to sit back and watch it go down the tubes. But you should listen to this and say and think the same thing. You shouldn't wait. You shouldn't like the way the food system and medical systems and all this stuff work because it's really, we all know it's going in the wrong direction. And we're kind of lulled into that cycle of just going with emotion. Mm -hmm. And we're not in charge. And we all need to take charge of our own health and destiny. It's well, it's hugely empowering to know there are organisms that we all can work with. And that's what I love so much about your work and your book. You get into low tech and no tech. And obviously, we don't need to walk through it all now, but everyone can grow mushrooms in one shape or form. You know, I love in your book, you talk about if you have a plastic bucket, you can make holes in and you have, you know, straw or wood chips, you can start growing mushrooms. This is a tool of empowerment that really everyone can take part in. And actually, that was one of my other questions, just because you're someone who's so tied into kind of the widespread cultivation and uses of these. How long do you think it's going to be before this is part of every hobby gardener's repertoire? You know, because so many people right. are into gardening. It's not that much harder to grow mushrooms. 
That's what I tell people. It's like, if you're listening, I was like, how many people grow or plant tomatoes at home, right? It's yeah. got to be an astronomical number. Yeah. And now, now you're thinking, why aren't you growing mushrooms at home? Because it only takes a couple weeks. It's very easy to do. They're very high in protein. You know, there's no fat, no cholesterol, no only non-animal source of vitamin D. You know, we need that. It's so easy to do that. And it doesn't take much time at all. Yeah. And it's not like a garden. You don't have to weed it. <laughs> Trust me. I don't, I hate weeding. <laughs> it's the hard work. Growing mushrooms should. If you go out and buy them, just consider this, you know, or if you don't support a local farmer who does, yes. you know, there's more and more great, uh, smaller local mushroom farmers support them. Go yeah. buy these white buttons and portobellas from the store from big companies. I mean, those mushrooms are sprayed right. just like the vegetables. You right. know, they are. And so get to know your farmer, get to know your mushroom farmer. And if you don't grow them yourself, and I know not everybody will. Not everybody grows their own tomatoes. They can't. They live right. in a condo. But you can grow mushrooms in a condo. You can grow <laughs> mushrooms just about, like you said, anywhere in the world. Yeah. That's my mission, you know, is to just uh, to get people excited about it. You know, aside from just getting the book, is there any maybe word of wisdom or a couple little nuggets of information for people who are listening to this and may have not cultivated mushrooms before and just anything they need to know? Obviously, you've just put out the big call to action, but any little words of wisdom or pieces of advice? Just take the broad view of what you just heard and find something that you can do with it and, and also share the information. You know, you listen to this, you think, oh, well, that's, I know somebody, you know, who would appreciate this, or I know a student who would want to listen to this, or another scientist who would want to listen to this, who's interested in remediation. And you can inject fungi into your life, no matter what occupation. <laughs> I'm confident. That's kind of the subject of my next book, you know, that I'm working on. It's like, I've taken different industries and I've broken it down. I said, listen, if you're a neurologist, you might think about psilocybin research. You might think about if I'm in the refuse business, like waste management, let's talk about how we can break this down and decrease our dependency on landfills, you know? Right. It's just things like that. So keep an open mind, but try to incorporate fungi into your life. Uh, I think once it gets in the door, it's like a little ember, you know? Yeah. It doesn't take much to throw a little bit more wood on the fire and make a bonfire. It's just like once you catch that, bug. It's like mushrooms can just change your life forever. I think it's like a beneficial virus. You know, it's like once it gets in there, your life just changes. It can change a little bit or it could be profound. Like when I, when I got hired at that mushroom farm, when I was 18, 19, I had no idea I would be doing this stuff. And it wasn't immediate. It takes time. Yeah. But now anyone listening has the benefit of <laughs> having everything I worked on handed to them, right? But then you got to build upon that. And mm -hmm. that's what I want the most. We all need that. And not just me, it's, you know, Paul, it's, it's everybody who's working on it. When you find a lot of these younger researchers and farmers, I mean, they've got some amazing ideas, Yeah, right? They're in that creative space. Think like a mushroom, go out and do it and get out into the wild, you know, learn how to hunt and, identify wild mushrooms. You know, it's a free food out there and mushrooms are not that difficult to ID if you take the right class or 
if you go to the right mushroom clubs, you know, and foraging is a part of our history. Yeah. 10, 20,000 years ago, we were all hunter gatherers. And now, you know, we're, we're gathering at a grocery store, <laughs> right? <laughs> we're not quite reclaiming our birthright with that one. No, but there's a way to go back to hit the reset button and mushrooms make you understand that maybe hell they'll break down paper and cardboard and stuff like that. Maybe I shouldn't be buying this plastic. Maybe I shouldn't be buying the food that's in styrofoam. Just refuse it. Flat out refuse it. Be a part of the solution and let mushrooms help you. They're willing to help. You just brought up a couple of the really exciting future projects. I was going to ask you if you had a new book and here we find out (laughs) that you do. But I know you're also doing some work in Jamaica with philosophy, you know, as if dealing with oil spills and being on the frontiers of health and all that weren't enough. You know, you're also doing the the explorations of uh, philosophy there in Jamaica. Yeah, that kind of came as a just a surprise to me, too. I was down there lecturing for the um, farmer to farmer program, mm. US uh, AID, I think it's what it's called. And they just had me go down and never looking for money for stuff like that, but they paid my way down there. And I lectured every day for seven days across Jamaica. And all of the, it was on cultivation. I mean, we did hands-on demonstrations. I brought spawn down. Everybody went home with a grow bag. And uh, every single one of those workshops were sold out with just as many on the waiting list. And what I heard from the director was that it was the most requested workshop they've ever had in the history in that country so i had to go back they sent me down again <laughs> and those sold out that's so, a popular demand yeah i was on tour yeah and when i was down there i started talk i give a talk about medicinal mushrooms and then i just i mean psilocybin was one of them you know philosophy i just briefly touched on it and they stopped there and they said no no hold on a minute you know let's talk about this more and before you know it we were talking about it for an hour right and I said, oh, well, well, you can't grow them here. They're not legal. And they said, oh, yeah, they are. And I said, you're kidding. So we talked to some people. Um, we asked the government. And uh, it turns out it is legal. And we got an attorney letter that says that we're allowed to cultivate psilocybin mushrooms, containing mushrooms on the island. Even though there's a lot of companies doing retreats and things, they're doing it just because it's legal. But listen, man, I'm, I play it careful. You know, you're in a foreign country. Um, most countries are corrupt. <laughs> and sure. I didn't want to end up in a Jamaican prison just out of hearsay. So we mm-hmm. found out. We got a letter. So then we started uh, setting up a lab. We started cultivating large numbers of um, the mushrooms down there and uh, started taking visitors for therapy sessions using sitters. And we've still got that going on right now it's on pause because of this uh, medical situation for flying and travel but uh, it's called the blue portal and Mm. right now i mean we've got a waiting list of people to go down it's just a matter of when Uh, the mushrooms are down there the lab equipment's down there and as soon as i feel like i can get a green light there's going to be a lot of people that attendees that want to go down there and work on you know something with intent whether it's anxiety or depression or drug dependence or maybe a bad relationship, cancer patient with anxiety, things like that. And that's really fulfilling to me because I've 
We've had patients walk out of these, even during the sessions, call me down. I'm not really, I'm not a part of the sessions. Uh, I may, I may think about it, but uh, if I get certified, but I've had the, the sitters call me down on the radio and say, so-and-so wants to talk to you. They want to, they want to talk to you. And I said, okay, I come down and they come out, you know, it's, it's after the two to three hours of blindfolded session and music, just like John Hopkins does. Right. And they're, they're sitting out overlooking the ocean, smiling just ear to ear and turning around and they get up and give me the warmest hug and they just whisper, thank you so much. This is just amazing. I feel so much different, so much love, so much healing. And the greatest thing is that feeling makes me, you know, feel like I'm doing something special and uh, I want to keep doing it for people. And you know what? And that's permanence. That person is going to, it's not like a drug, you know, it's not going to wear off for a while. They're going to have that feeling of gratitude and love for themselves that they were missing and love yeah. for others. And it's going to last a long time. It's almost, there's a, a permanence is what uh, Kat Harrison said, you know, Kat's the, um, uh, her husband was Terrence oh, McKenna. Yeah. 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 And rewiring the brain <laughs> without surgery. Imagine that. I mean, um, as, as if, as if we hadn't covered all the bases to explore yeah. your own internal consciousness, your own emotional space, spiritual space. I mean, we don't really have tools to do that except for, you know, meditating hours a day or years of mm -hmm. introspection. I mean, this is like such an important tool and, uh, you can't help but be in awe at the potential yeah. that lies there, just in that one genus of mushroom. Yeah. It's really amazing. And I, I started meditating about a month and a half, two months ago. Hmm. And it's really helped because, you know, the world's crazy. Uh, my work's crazy. And um, I, I need to just kind of calibrate and avoid the distractions, uh, you know, avoid the non-essential. And yeah. that's really helped. But psilocybin, let me tell you, you pretty much go right to it. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours in, if you say, well, I have a hard time meditating. I don't know how to meditate. Eh, the mushroom will meditate for you. It'll, it's going to get you right there. The fast track. Fast track, yeah. Listen, if you've never done it before, don't do it by yourself. Be with somebody who's done it. Be with somebody you know and trust. And you will have a, a, a wonderful experience. And there's plenty of books out on it. And, you know, read uh, what's it, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind is a yeah. good book. And there's a lot of books on the subject, but that might, you know, it compares all different kinds of what are known as hallucinogens, but it's just the feeling that you get. And I think it's a game changer. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was really curious to get your feedback on that because you were not someone I had heard associated with psilocybin before. So I was really intrigued to hear about your work down there in Jamaica. Super inspiring. Again, just getting out there, yeah. And being in the field, making it happen. Now, there's so much more that we could cover with you, you know, from your foraging certification programs, mm -hmm. which is a huge project to, I know, I think I saw on the website, a Mushroom Mountain University. Yeah, we're going to have to do a part two. We're, gonna have we're to do definitely going to have to do a part two. So where can people find out about more of your work and all the amazing things your team there at Mushroom Mountain is I doing? Know. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not on social media that much, but I would say just sign up. 
befriend the the Mushroom Mountain Farm uh, Facebook page, and uh, we post stuff there. I'm on Twitter, but I haven't tweeted in years. You know, I'm not someone that's going to tweet about what I had for lunch or you know things just insignificant. Well, I will tweet when I find a new cordyceps, you know, mushroom or something really interesting that I think other people be interested in too. Right. So yeah, I need to step up my tweeting game just to take the time. I'm always in that position to do it. Well, don't. you guys are on Instagram too, right? Spore prints. Yeah. And now I am, I, I got signed up a couple of days ago. I think I see, I think I don't even know. I think I did, <laughs> um, but I need to be better with social media, but the mushroom mountain team does a great job with that. So yeah. what I usually do is we kind of channel what's going on through that because there's a lot of followers and then we share it to my page. And yeah. so it just cross pollinates, you know, we'll link all those different places. People can connect with you guys. Uh, and this is one of those final questions that I just probably a pretty long answer, but how integral has your partner Olga been to all your work? Yeah. yeah she runs the farm, you know, she does uh, web design. She does the sales. She does the emails. I mean, we probably get 200 emails a day and she handles the workload and she's organizing and the payroll and stuff like that. So we divide and conquer, we split it our strengths up. And uh, she's also designing some of the mycometric products like the elderberry reishi extract and the honeys and things like that. And those have taken off. So we both work in product development. I just do most of the laboratory stuff, the research things, um, lecturing, teaching, yeah. you know, and now she's starting to teach a little, she, she's now started a uh, women in mycology group, a Zoom group, which I think is, is a long time coming. And that's a right. monthly, I think it's a monthly thing. So if you're interested in that, just email Olga at Mushroom Mountain. Her, her, uh, she's on the contact page and just say, I want to be on the next Zoom call and, and she'll sign you up. She'll send you the link. At their last meeting, I walked into the room and I had a, a big blonde wig on and I asked them if I could join them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, sure, anybody's welcome. You know, they're going to have that connection as a female energy is very important. Yeah. So that's great for you know, the past uh, 15 years, Mushroom Mountain, I, I created when I was single a long time ago. And it just, it was an idea, just thinking about growing and spawn and a little bit of spawn, maybe. And that's about it. But once, once we got up here in South Carolina, and then I went back to school at Clemson, then I started learning about bacteria. And I just became like ravenous for information. You know, this past year, a year ago, I went down to University of Florida and took an intensive on mycorrhizae, like identifying them, cultivating them. I haven't applied that yet, but I know that it's a tool in my toolbox because I do have ideas with mycorrhizae. So I'm waiting for, you know, an opening <laughs> of time that um, we can explore different projects with different mycorrhizae. And I'll be honest with you, it's probably going to take hiring somebody in or, you know, working with a student or an intern to hand that baton off to and say, hey, I got the ideas, but I need someone to help me do the work, help us do the work. There's just not enough time. So you got to find someone who's passionate, who can integrate into what we're doing to help push that forward. You guys all just heard it. Mushroom Mountain needs that passionate person to be part of yeah. the team. So hopefully you'll get hundreds of emails from, from interested. Oh, geez, here we go. Volunteers. <laughs> 
Well, that's terrific. And I, I remember it was a couple of years ago at Telluride Mushroom Festival. I saw you there with your family with Olga. And I thought, okay, that's the secret. That's how this guy's in a million places at once. Mm-hmm. There's someone who's kind of keeping it all together. So I had a feeling yeah, she was a partner a, in crime. I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, wrap up with the three questions I like to ask all my guests. And I have a feeling you'll have some great answers to these. First of which is just a mushroom you love and why. And you can blow our minds with something we may have never heard of or just one that you thought of right now, but a mushroom you love and why? I love this little cordyceps I've found. They mummify ants and things, and we're investigating the possibility of using it as a a fire ant killer. And again, that goes back, but it's, it's just the fungus itself is fascinating. It sticks to the armor of insects, specific insects, drills a hole, and then starts to mummify the insect, gets up into their brain and melts their jaw muscles and then kills them. And then a mushroom pops out the back of their brain. That's just insane. And, you know, and it's target specific for those specific ants or very close clade of ants. I think that that is just, that is cool. And the potential for that being a more target specific pesticide is even more intriguing. Again, just like the bacteria, this is a whole, another example of protecting our biodiversity and getting rid of pesticides. So yeah, cordyceps mushrooms in general are just fascinating to me because that could really mean potential for eliminating pesticide use. It's gone on too long. And here, here they are, they're doing it in nature. They figured it out. We just need to learn to think like the cordyceps and learn how to harness that ability. And I think that's one that always captures people's imagination. And now not the least of which, because it may replace pesticides. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a question that we've kind of talked about the whole time, but what has this relationship with fungi or mushrooms given to you? What has this brought to your life? Maybe what has it taught you? What perspectives has it offered? Even, you know, any kind of spiritual sense of fulfillment. That's easy. Empathy. Mm-hmm. A great sense of empathy and compassion and gratitude for living things and the interconnectedness when you, when you start looking at these inner kingdom interactions and uh, how they collaborate. Listen, you know, humans don't collaborate like they should. We, we can learn a lot about how they can work together and resolve their differences and harmonize, you know, their environments. They're very selfless, right? Yeah. They're doing this work and it's not appreciated, um, but they're building soil and creating all these wonderful things. It's like they're waving a flag and saying, this is the time. Look at what we're doing. You know, we're trying to help. Ask not what mushrooms can do for you, what you can do for mushrooms. <laughs> I use that on another podcast, but it's mine. I can reuse it. And it's true. We need to help them because they want to help us. I like the interconnectedness feeling. It's very gratifying to know that being a part of this is, you know, it's a dream come true. Once you're in that mycelium web at all, you feel all those <laughs> connections. Yeah, I think we can't all help but feel that connection when you think of mushrooms, probably because physically that's what they're doing so much of the time. Uh, but that's a beautiful thing. And then finally, what is the lasting impact that you hope to make with your work? And this doesn't have to be, you know, build a statue to trad. It could just be something you feel like you're contributing to a greater wave. I tear it down. <laughs> there, there'd be something specific that says, you know, never will a statue be built of me somewhere in the legacy. But what, what's the lasting impact you have to have? 
you know, to me, it's like I said, the mushrooms get the credit. I'm just the mediator or the medium by which, you know, we're delivering this and thinking about it. Sure. Other people are thinking, and I didn't get all these ideas by myself either. You know, I pay attention to what other people are doing. I learned from, you know, every mycologist, you don't have to be a mycologist. You just learn from an engineer, you know, learn this, learn that. You just put the pieces together. But I think that, you know, if something horrific was to happen to me right after this podcast, which I hope it doesn't, I would say that I would be content that at least I did this much, right? I am hopeful and optimistic and looking forward to the future that these things can create what we talked about, like the antibiotics and stuff. That's a huge thing. If we look back and you look at what you've done, it's like not just living your life. There's a quote like, people are alive, but they don't live. And I want to live in a future that is exactly what the vision that I'm trying to paint. And, you know, I want to live in a pesticide-free, drug-resistant, free, peaceful world. I'm willing to put the work in to do it. And other people should. You know, it's going to be a, a group effort. We need everyone to kind of get on board and say, yeah, you know, what are we doing? I don't want any, I don't want my legacy. I want mushrooms to have the legacy. Put a mushroom statue out in the plaza. Of course, that should be in every plaza. Yes. And worship the mushrooms. (laughs) So a legacy of mushroom worship. I don't think we could ask for anything better, but I do know that you have made a massive impact on helping so many of us further our own experience with mushrooms, make it so much easier, so much more accessible. You know, I said at the beginning, your work, organic mushroom farming and micromediation had a huge impact on me. And I can't really overstate that. That was the first book I got about mushrooms that I actually read cover to cover. And just, you can take away so much from, from that one book alone. So Trad, I salute you. I thank you for all the work that you're doing. I thank you for being willing to show up and do the work, put some of these ideas into action and inspire us all. And I thank you for coming and sharing with us on the Mushroom Hour podcast. Yeah. And I I hope uh, anyone listening, you know, now's the time to act, get out there, take this information and, and put it to work, you know, make it a part of your life. But thank you for having me. 